1: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode.
2: You may know me as the curator of the museum dedicated to Chrissy Teigen's Instagram posts, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Michael Connor, the artistic director of Rhizome, a digital art community affiliated with the new museum in New York City, where I am right now. Rhizome is currently running an exhibit, a fascinating exhibit at the museum highlighting the history of art made on the internet. It's called The Art Happens Here click here, apparently, on your book, which is really wonderful. They have a wonderful book affiliated with it. Michael, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: It's great to be here.
2: So I'm so excited about this because there's a, there's a couple in there I do recall. The Dolly Clone, I recall oh, yeah. that, and some others. I've been around since the beginning of the internet. We I, I covered it very early. Um, and art was sort of a something I hadn't thought of, although it, it occurred on it all the time. And there's memes and there's creativity and all kinds of things. So I'd love to sort of get a, an idea of how this came together. And then I want to talk about the actual individual pieces and there's some you want to focus in on. So let's talk about how it came together.
3: Sure. Well, I think... That story is sort of inextricable from the story of Rhizome itself, which is an organization that was founded in 1996. So, mm-hmm. you know, pretty early in yes, the life cycle strange. of the public Internet. And right. um, it came together as a kind of online community to bring people together to share information and talk about this this new kind of Me. communications platform and how it could be used artistically. Right. But very quickly after that, it, it evolved into a conversation about how works that were made through that new platform could be Um, sustained over time. So Mm -hmm. in 1999, Ryzen began an archive of digital art called The Art Base.
2: Talk about that, because things go away on the internet. There's been the internet archive to save websites and, and things that happen, like you can find old Yahoo's, old Google's, the original things, but the Internet by its nature, even though there's a famous line in the movie about Facebook, the the Internet's written in pen, not pencil, um, it does go away. It does. It has the ephemerality that is very different, and in art, that's the case.
3: Sure. I actually don't like to use the word ephemerality okay. about the Internet because I think that the Internet kind of doesn't have to go away. Right. There is something that's very performative about the Internet, Um that's one of the reasons why we call our exhibition the art happens here mm-hmm. because the art is happening. It's not a passive object on a shelf. It's sure. something that happens in encounters between people and machines. And um, what we find is that mm-hmm. over time, Internet culture is devalued. So people don't recognize its value and they're not putting the resources um, Absolutely. institutionally into sustaining Absolutely. it. Absolutely. That's a And also point. companies don't um, kind of consider the kind of downside of obsolescence as they push forward for always yeah. having a new a new platform and a new thing. Right. And right. so there is a kind of cultural aspect to the way that Internet art kind of doesn't last. All would. right,
2: so you had been collecting and preserving it because what was the, the idea that it should be collected and preserved like other works of art?
3: Well, Rhizome is really um, an organization that focuses on a very contemporary form of culture, but we do that with the knowledge that that there's a conversation that people can draw on from the past. So we, we're always trying to support younger artists and emerging works and new kinds of practice that don't even recognize as art yet. Mm-hmm. But in in doing so, we want people to to know, like, there's this whole history that you can draw on and um, and kind of bring forward as a resource for the present. All so, right.
2: Yeah. So go ahead. So.
3: Um, well, so this exhibition is an opportunity to kind of bring together different positions from the history of internet art and to, I think, present them in ways that show how they are kind of relevant to this moment in time as well.
2: Right. Um, which is any exhibition wants to do that. But so, you, <laughs> but but you were preserving these over time oh, yeah. and with what in mind? Where, where were, were they presented somewhere? Or are they in this archive?
3: Well, the question of how to preserve internet art is like a really complicated and interesting one. But I think Rhizome has a particular take on that conversation. Um, You know, we're sort of interested in in the idea of internet art being re-performed and and thinking about how this very active format can be, you know, can be treated in a way that doesn't fix it necessarily in a a given position, but instead allows it to, to kind of live. So there's a couple of different technical strategies that we've developed, in particular that we've found to be really suitable. Um, to our preservation strategy. Mm -hmm. One of them is um, emulation. Um, Our preservation director, Dragon Espen is a really um, key advocate of emulation as a way of bringing works from the past into the present. And one of the interesting things about emulation, which is using a piece of software to imitate another piece of software, Mm -hmm. is that what we're doing when we use emulation is not preserving the artwork necessarily we're preserving the software that made it run. Mm-hmm. And so the, the real problem isn't keeping a hold of the work, but it's keeping a hold of all the cultural right. co- and technical context that surrounds it. Right. Which is kind of different than, I think, preservation in a museum traditional context.
2: Well, except, you know, it's interesting you say that because I was at the Smithsonian 10 years ago, and they had all these computers they had to save because they were trying to save them for posterity, all the various computers and devices. And one of the problems is, two problems, actually. One is they had were missing some of the software to use it, to be able to use it, and the the degrading of that software. And then secondly, the people who knew how to use it. And so they would have to find really old people to work some of the very early technologies, which I was—and if not, they were just blocks of, like, bricks. They were, like, bricks that didn't do anything. And so it was a really interesting. So they brought me in. They're like, what do we do? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't—something. Like— it was it was a really interesting question. I guess go to the companies and hope that they would preserve them.
3: Yeah, and, it, you know, keeping hold of that knowledge is an important part of what we do. We actually mm-hmm. have a software curator, um, mm-hmm. Lindsay Jane Moulds. She's not, um, you know, a dinosaur of the internet. She's someone, instead, who researches these Historian, I mean. Yeah, You know, one of her kind of key projects is to look at browsers of the past and kind of research and understand their different affordances, what they were capable of presenting and what they weren't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of, like, really practical ways that comes into play. I can show you one sure. now if, sure. if you want to yeah. do that. Um, one of the works in the gallery exhibition at mm-hmm. the New Museum, mm-hmm. they're, they're not all browser-based, but one of the ones that is, is called Skin on Skin on Skin by um, a group called Entropy It's Super. And it's really... It's, what year? This is from 99. Mm-hmm. And it's actually just turned 20 years old a, few, a couple of weeks ago. So mm-hmm. It's a good post-Valentine's Day work, because (laughs) it's actually a series of 25 internet-based love letters that Uh they sent back and forth, multimedia love letters. And um, they did it after meeting online on hell.com, which you may... Oh, I remember. Yeah, and the work was actually intended to be private just for them, but other users of hell, like, kind of, I think they stumbled upon their private directory, and then Mm -hmm. it became public. Right. So then they decided to sell it, so they made it a pay-per-view artwork in the early internet. Mm -hmm. But the work involves all kinds of things, like um, Shockwave, and flash and sound and all these other things. So finding the right browser that ran this work, um, you know, took that kind of knowledge. Of yeah, Steve Jobs ended security. that,
2: if you remember.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's,
2: he did it at one of our conferences, actually, which was interesting. So let me see this.
3: Yeah, so in order to uh, make this work accessible on the web today, our preservation team led by Dragon um, has set up an online emulation um environment um using a platform that they call emulation as a service with the University of Freiburg.
2: For those who aren't looking at this, Windows 98 just yeah. came
3: up. So we're starting Windows 98 in our in our browser here.
2: So you know Netscape just came up.
3: What this is doing is really sort of spinning up an instance on the cloud for us to kind of access this work interactively through a, you know, essentially like a live video connection. So that's why at the beginning you saw that I was able to choose the location of my server Mm -hmm. because having a low lag time is important to the experience of the work. It's not like a video where you can buffer and have that kind of lag. So these are some very sort of high production value pieces that they made just for one another as a way of kind of getting to know each other and developing that intimacy. And there's a lot of really rich detail and depth in them. The So, here we're looking at um, Oria, who is one of the two people, sent a picture of herself, and you can mouse over it and it animates the picture and you can see her partner underneath. Here's a nice goth image of a beating heart. Yeah. (laughs) So, you can, you know, it's a step beyond Tinder, Mm -hmm. but now, (laughs) but many years before, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So, it was a
2: way of meeting people and impressing people via photos or graphics or things like that. Yeah,
3: each of these is a composition that they made, and I'm also fascinated with the idea that you could, like, kind of take it and sort of sell it as a work in a so right. right, like an epistolary novel of the mm-hmm. early internet age.
2: Right. And so what were you looking for when you were bringing together the show? What was the co- the conceptual ideas? Because like, some are browsers Talk about the different types of things that you were presenting, browser-based versus, and which there was Netscape browser, then there was other, during that time period, that was the dominant browser, actually.
3: Yeah. Well, when we were doing the show, so I should explain that okay. this show comes out of an effort called NetArt Anthology, which is... <laughs> an effort to retell the history of net art through 100 works right so in the research of the net art history we've seen people try and tell a story you know in, in book form in different ways But we wanted to kind of um, look at the works themselves and let a story emerge from that in an almost fragmentary way. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were inspired by the model of Anthology Film Archives here in New York, which has Mm -hmm. this sort of essential cinema list. Just walked
1: by
0: yesterday. Yeah,
3: it's like an incredible resource. They put together this list of films in the 70s that they considered to define the art of cinema. So we, we know that project has its own problems, but we thought it was an interesting way to look at net art. Um so we did this work online you can see it at anthology.rhizome.org and you can see the 100 works and like all these different stories about them there. Um this exhibition brings together 16 of those and we wanted not to like make a best of or a particular time mm-hmm. period but instead to think about like what are the problems that come up when you're thinking historically about net art and digital culture, mm-hmm. and you know what are the kinds of questions that we think people should be asking about that, so the works are intended to show a diverse range of media forms and um, positions on the question of archiving, and this one in particular is an interesting in relation to that because it started just as this encounter between people, not not something that's intended to last over time necessarily, mm-hmm. but then it had this other life through its circulation as a kind of you know a product for sale. But then it went away. Like, the artists haven't seen this work in 20 years almost. Right. Where was um, it for
2: them? Was it on their...
3: It was, but they weren't, you know, they didn't have the kind of emulation in place to right. sort they of access. Yeah, yeah, they you haven't seen it. got rid of that in. computer, right? I guess it was 2004 was the last time they'd seen it before mm-hmm. we presented it online. Right. It kind of dealt with the question of archives in two ways. Like one, the idea of public circulation being its own form of archiving mm-hmm. by putting it into people's hands. And the other the sort of institutional question of archiving, like how do we resist these forces of technological obsolescence and make things, you know, continue Which to have Which is an life. artwork
2: in and of itself. as it's an art theme, well, obsolescence, right?
3: Absolutely. So it's
2: the 16 of them, so the 100 that are in there are the ones that they, they go back. Explain what is in the 100.
3: Yeah, the 100... Works include um, projects from 1982 to 2016. Mm-hmm.
2: What's 82? What's in 82?
3: Well, that was Robert Adrian X's The World in 24 Hours, which mm-hmm. is our oldest work. We have also Electronic Cafe 84, which is a really nice older project. Um, both of those works are early networking projects where people were interested in the idea that telecommunications networks were ways of connecting people and and having participatory kinds of idea at the events. It absolutely was. Electronic Cafe eighty four is in particular a really fascinating Explain that story. Then. That one is from the nineteen eighty four Los Angeles Olympics and it was five sites that were connected um, over sort of early networks that mm-hmm. used the community memory bulletin board mm-hmm. uh, in order to have people in these, like, local communities make and share images with each other and, and use a, some sort of video writer to annotate them and sh- exchange them back and forth. So they had a kind of it's restaurant— It's
2: called Instagram, but go
3: ahead. Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, they had to, they had um, spaces set up in, um, in Koreatown and in Venice and at, uh, I think, a, a Mexican restaurant— also, somewhere in South Central LA, they had these kind of interesting, like really community-based spaces, and they had people making, you know, work with these new tools and sharing it, and um, you know, really kind of anticipating a lot of the things that would later happen, mm-hmm. um, but doing it in a way that was very community-focused.
2: Right, right, which is really interesting. I mean, when you saw these things then, it was really something because it just didn't exist. It just that that's now we're so used to these things and how easily we become used to these tools. But at the time. They didn't. These things people didn't share things like this. They. Never, I remember downloading a book on the internet at a server at a college, and I kept saying I've downloaded a book, and they were like, "So and? and." I'm like, "You don't even understand what that means." I was I was quite particular about it. I was like, "This is bigger than you understand, right?" This moment in time, this will be. This is like an aha moment for me at least. Yeah. Um. So the first work, the '82 work, was the a similar thing.
3: Yeah. So um, that was an effort to connect a number of sites worldwide um, mm-hmm. using fax and slow scan. TV and early internet, but it was only text-based. So mm-hmm. in that respect. as everything was back then, indeed. And um, the so the idea was they would link up these different sites and kind of share works back and forth in an mm-hmm. ongoing kind of performance. So for each hour of the day, there would be a different venue that would be producing and receiving and displaying. And uh, what survives from that is a, is a lot of documentation that shows kind of like sort of these very active scenes where people are making drawings and you know, moving around the space and connecting with one another. Um, But I think that what it comes down to is this idea that when the network becomes available to you as a possibility, I think that, you know, there's a lot of questions like, what can this enable me to do? And for many people, I would argue that one of the first things they want to do is just kind of connect with one Mm -hmm. another. And that means really creating culture, I think, through the network.
2: Absolutely. Did you think about how it had been done previously with other mediums? I mean, the first um, thing that was, first movie that was broadcast or, it's a beautiful film of two men dancing, which is really quite lovely. Um, I don't know if you know that. It's a little tiny film that they made. I think it was Edison made it because they they had men in the studio and they just were showing movement. And so it was quite artistic in a way. But did you did you think about how to talk about how different Internet art is. Is it net art or internet art? Just net art. You use the the term net art in your book.
3: Yeah, I like net art because it's sort of a little more casual and Mm -hmm. it implies like a fuzziness about it that I think is appropriate given the complexity of the internet. Internet art makes it seem like it's something really specific to Mm -hmm. me, which is not correct. You know, the internet is so has so many different forms. of so how the do time. you define
2: net art? What does that mean to you? Well,
3: I like to define it as um, art that happens on or or through the internet. Mm-hmm. The choice of the word "happens" comes from the same you know source as the title of our exhibition, which is an artwork by an artist duo called M.T.A.A. Mm-hmm. called um, Simple Net Art Diagram. So, this mm-hmm. is the best explanation. Okay, of go net ahead. Art. Go for it. And it's just a diagram that shows two computers with a line connecting them, and there's a lightning bolt in between them. And the, there's a little label that says, the art happens here, pointing to the space between the computers. And MTAA made this work because they wanted to tell people that when they're looking at their net art works, what you see on the screen isn't the work. It's the exchange that's the work. It's the dialogue that's happening. Huh. And so it's not just about the object, but about, like, what's unfolding through that kind of um, moment of Which interaction. Which
2: you can't do with a regular piece of art. You just stand in front of it, right? That it doesn't. Oh. Yeah.
3: I'm, I mean, Sometimes I, <laughs> you
2: participate with it or something, but there's there's usually little participation, correct? Are you...
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's important about the project that you were starting to refer to is that there is like a longer history of networked art that mm-hmm. goes beyond the internet. I mm-hmm. mean, you could argue that the Lumiere brothers yes. actually set up a communications network around the world with their agents that were exchanging these films mm-hmm. in five continents within, I think, the first two years of the cinematograph right. being invented. So, right. so networking is actually, I think, a pretty important part of art. But the computer and the computer network makes that kind of um, more powerful, and a new form of art or new forms of art begin to proliferate because of that technology. An artist plus the Internet isn't just an artist on the Internet. It's a kind of different kind of entity.
2: All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with Michael Connor. He's the artistic director of Rhizome. They have a show now called uh, The Art Happens Here, and it's about uh, the history of art made on the Internet and for the Internet and, and various ways. we're we to talk about that and more when we get
0: back.
1: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: We're here with Michael Connor. He's the artistic director of Rhizome. We're talking about internet art or net art, where there's a show now in New York at the New Museum about showing some of these works. Let's talk about the tools that are used in, in the, the works that you picked. You picked 16 works out of 100. Browsers, obviously, the top use tool or I, of art, or because or it is the communications vehicle for a lot of things, especially in the early internet.
3: Well, I think... You know, really, when it comes to net art, artists are using every tool that's connected to the internet. One email. of the works that I, was there a lot of email? email. Yeah, there's well, one of the works I was going to mention in relation to tools would be Blind Spot by Miao Ying, a Chinese mm-hmm. artist who, in 2008, um, Googled every word in in the Mandarin dictionary, mm-hmm. an 1,800 page dictionary, and she whited out the words that were that were censored. Um, and it was kind of like an early stage in that initial um, mm-hmm. moment of Google and China trying to kind of come to a rapprochement, which of course is relevant in the present and in and it certainly is they did
2: not come they did and then they didn't people don't realize Google was 26% of the chinese search market for a while there
3: yeah i mean it was it had an important role and what's fascinating about that work is that you know you could say that the form of it is a book but it wouldn't really have existed without you know internet Google. access Google, all these other kind of tools coming into play. So all of those things are part of the making of that mm-hmm. of that piece and part of the tool set, I would argue.
2: And what about email?
3: Email, okay. <laughs> so one of the interesting works that uses email is Mark Tribe, Alex Galloway, and Martin Wattenberg's um, Starry Night, mm-hmm. which is a great um, project to talk about because it uses Rhizome's own archive. It's based on Rhizome's text base. All of the emails that were sent on Rhizome's listserv in the 90s were curated into a special selected archive of the best emails that announced events or (laughs) offered art criticism. And um, the text base um, was this incredible archive, and Mark and other people at Ryzen were interested in offering new and artistic ways to access it. So Starry Night was an artistic interface to the text base that took the form of a starry kind of um, image. When you clicked on each star represented an email, when you clicked on that star, it would bring up a set of keywords. So, if you clicked on the keyword "net art," you could see all of the other emails in the text base were connected by a kind of constellation. Right, right. Um, and you could navigate to all the other emails f- attached to that keyword. That's wonderful. So, it's a really interesting classic work. Of, Great way to
2: think of email. Yeah.
3: Absolutely, of mm-hmm. internet aesthetics. And I also think like email is something that's like so momentary. To go back to it is actually really hard, as we all it is you know in our. I just forget about it's it. It's just hard. Yeah. And sometimes maybe you wake up in the middle of the night. This is a different way of going back.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Beyond. I never wake up in the of the night <laughs> I don't answer email anymore, just so you know, Michael. Oh, yeah? Uh, so don't send me one. Uh, I won't. No, I just don't. I just decided I'm done with it.
3: It's probably a good idea. I mean, it's really a horrifying... Someone's
2: like, did you get my email? I'm like, no, I did not. And they're like, I sent it. I'm like, yeah, I didn't get it. I
3: You're think. like a hero to me.
2: <laughs> I just decided. I, have, I get 5,000 emails a day.
3: I just begin with every email with, I'm sorry. It's just yeah. like... Yeah, that's the only. Yeah,
2: there's a great Nora Ephron essay on this it way hundred years ago. She wrote about being get moving from excitement to email to non excitement. All right, let's, so other other tools. One of them was the Dolly clones. I remember that. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that because that's an object. You're using a you're using an object to talk about surveillance, really. Yeah, and other issues around that.
3: Yeah, the Dolly clones are a fantastic. Explain the Dolly project. clones
2: because it's creepy and fantastic. Yeah, well, this stuff. is
3: this is a work by Lynn Hirschman Leeson. We included in the online exhibition. It's not in the gallery project actually because we you know it doesn't really speak to archiving questions yeah, in the same way? Yeah, where's Dolly? Well, I mean, Dolly's been exhibited recently yeah. a couple of times, so we felt also... Where do you put the Dolly? Do you <laughs> do
2: you? Explain Dolly. Dolly's All right, Dolly. Help.
3: Well, Lynn um, has been working on the questions of, like, cyborgs and mm-hmm. how technology would change the human for a long time, really since mm-hmm. the late 60s. Right. And so in the 90s, when um, Dolly, the kind of clone sheep, was developed, uh, Lynn was sort of inspired by that. You know, she's not like a person that... Is overly, I would say, paranoid about new technologies that might change the definition of what it means to be a human or a living thing. She's more enthusiastic, but also kind of questioning. So her Dolly clones were a clone of herself and a clone of her alternate persona, Roberta mm-hmm. Brightmore, which is a, this kind of the identity plan, she's right. developed as right. a sort of artwork. Yeah. And she used to have projects where you could go to a hotel room and like open drawers and see Roberta Brightmore's um, like stuff and like understand her story from mm-hmm. looking at her stuff. She got a driver's license as this alter ego. <laughs> I mean, all these things that just the I'm idea of like, like a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So she made dolls of herself and of this evil twin, as you call it. And um,
2: no, it's an evil twin. But go ahead, move along.
3: I don't know if it's evil. Yes, it is.
2: It says evil in there too. I would recall oh, it does it being okay. Evil, yeah. All
3: right, I'll go with that. Okay, um, and the dolls it's are always an
2: evil twin. <laughs> just so you know, there's never so, not an evil twin go ahead. <laughs>
3: no, I'm teasing. <laughs> I, can't, I can't endorse this. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so the dolls were little sculptures that sat in display cases in a the gallery. They each had a webcam in place of one of their eyes, yeah. and they each had a website where you could go to their website and see what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. So they would be displayed in a gallery, and then people on the web could go and look at what the dolls were seeing in the gallery space. And they would upload, like, it was early webcams, so they would upload, like, every three seconds a still image of the gallery space. Right. Um, so it was interesting as a way of thinking about, like, what like a networked vision might be, you mm-hmm. know, now that we have cameras that, are, that we can call up all around the world, what, how does that change our understanding of human vision? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was thinking about the internet user as a person who could see through the doll's eyes. Right. So as you click through, you could actually control the doll's heads uh, telematically from the web browser. Mm-hmm. And then you would click through and see these different provocations about what it meant to be a person that could see through the network in this way.
2: Right. And also right now, facial recognition, surveillance, all these issues around this, and and, and robotics in terms of creating cyborgs, these yeah, ideas.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the understanding of what we think of as human is shifting as a result of technology. And, you know, this is a project I'm describing from the 90s that was obviously taking up these questions at an earlier moment in that discussion, which mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the reasons why a project like this is important to me because... Right. These conversations have a history that we can draw on and mm-hmm. I think help to contextualize where we are now in relation right. to things like facial recognition.
2: Right. Were you, did you have to feel like you stayed relevant to what's happening now? Because all these issues are in these pieces of art at, in many ways, lots of different things, whether it's the Dolly clones or, or other things.
3: One of the principles in Net Art Anthology was that we wanted to show the works one at a time so they could recirculate on social media and mm-hmm. sort of spark their own conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just in terms of rhizomes and function as an organization, we're always kind of connecting with younger artists by doing interviews and projects. Mm-hmm. We have a grant program where we give out small amounts of money on the internet for um, with a very easy application. So we have like this kind of, you know, we speak to a public which is made up in, of many emerging and young artists. And so by recirculating the works, we found that it was sparking these kinds of conversations where people were encountering the works and kind of being inspired by them in ways that, you know, in, in some cases we might have predicted and in some cases... Um, Kind of not like this morning. Just I was just looking at well, this morning I was looking at a show at the Migros Museum in mm-hmm. Switzerland, and there's a couple of you know recent works that are shown in the foreground, one by the, a Chinese artist named Guan In the background is a poster from 1991 or 92 by VNS Matrix Mm -hmm. called The Cyber Feminist Manifesto for the 21st Century. Mm -hmm. And that was the first work that we presented in Net Art Anthology. And I can't claim that we are the reason that it's there, but I certainly feel like we've put something forward into the world and it's starting to circulate on its own in a new way as a result.
2: Well, that's interesting because did you imagine the people who were making this art at the time thought it would survive? Or was it it made not to survive? I mean, do you think people then... When you choose to do an internet or a net, piece of art, you're making a choice of possibility of I want to again use the word obsolescence but gone like gone I
3: think that it varies, some artists were thinking historically from the very start Mm -hmm. for many artists it never crossed their mind and there's a lot of examples of people who I think didn't realize how attached they would be to the work that they made sure. until it was inaccessible to them. And mm-hmm. then they've, in some cases, experienced it as kind of like almost like a personal, like a real personal loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does vary. I mean, someone like Mark Tribe, the founder of Rhizome, was thinking about these questions early on, but it was partly because so many artists had already begun to lose their work and mm-hmm. and, um, and find that things were not you know, able to be sustained.
2: It's somewhat ironic the losing of the work because there's there's a there, there's a group uh, just Lorraine Jobs just bought it actually Pop Up Magazine which creates shows artistic shows a lot of them about a lot of them essays phot- photography discussions and stuff music and they don't tape them at all they don't preserve them in any way and that is it when you ha- when you see it the audience sees it and then it is gone and that it's purposefully that way, although they're very active so on social media. They're very active. They have California Sunday Magazine other things. The premise is that. The art is done
3: and moves along. Yeah, and that is definitely a, a kind of aspect of net art practice too. The conscious decision not to hold on to something is really you know something that has its own artistic possibilities. Mm-hmm. So some of the works in net art anthology are only presented as kind of documentation. Um, there's a piece that is kind of an interesting one in that respect, by Devin Kenny, called Untitled Khalifa. and it's a performance that he did in um, I think 2013 in Mexico City, mm-hmm. and he was interested in the new meme of Trayvoning, which is like kind of like planking but done by what he describes as like really horrible people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because Trayvoning was like lying down with Skittles and pretending that you were in the Good. pose of Trayvon Martin, right. and
2: which was an internet meme.
3: It was an internet meme. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, really awful. And so Devin was like... awful. (laughs) 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 That that is is one of the most awful. Yes, something is very awful on the internet. So he performed as... He did his own kind of tray experience at this gallery space, and and it kind of, um, you know, was in Mexico City, so it was in a different context where people might have had their own associations, but he was interested in, like, embodying this very horrible position that people were taking, um, and then, you know, just you know, it really kind of existed as a a sort of moment in time. Mm -hmm. I think maybe another work that's sort of along those lines is Amalia Ullman's Mm Ethera, which is an app that she developed that was intended as a kind of anonymous social media project in response to the way that people were feeling so much pressure to brand themselves online, Mm -hmm. especially around mental health. Um, Brand themselves, how
2: explain it?
3: Well, online, if you begin tweeting, for example, about your issues with um, depression... Right soon you attract followers that want to see content about depression and you understand that when you tweet about depression in a certain way, you might get more likes. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of incentive to talk about mental health in a certain Mm -hmm. way that becomes part of like a public persona and that isn't necessarily productive for someone who's using those tools as a way of actually dealing with mental health. Like maybe speaking to your followers isn't what you need. Maybe what you need is release and catharsis, a sense of human connection. So Amalia created Etheria as an app that was a little bit similar to something like Snapchat, where you could make posts that were attached to a map, and the the, um, posts would be visible for a certain amount of time, and they'd go away. And they were always anonymous. And so people were using it as a kind of like a shouting into the void project to kind of release something they had to get off their chest. Right. um, and she did that for a while, and the, you know, the idea was that the kind of, like, the posts themselves would disappear. But it was very difficult, of course, to make, like, entire social media platform as an artist that had, you know, an explicitly sort of indie commercial vibe right. to it, like right. no user profiles, no ability to capture any data from people, mm-hmm. you know, there was no profit elements to this project at all. So in the end of the project, she kind of staged a funeral for the app itself mm-hmm. as the kind of closure of it. Right. So none of the content is available, the app itself is gone, and the project is now at a close.
2: No data. But
3: Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, that was the.
2: Yes, she's not an internet company.
3: She explicitly is not an internet company. (laughs) The other day
2: was describing how these companies got started, Google and others. That a lot of the data they originally collected was garbage to them. They didn't need it, and it turned out to be gold. You know that they it was just extra stuff that was part of the search process, and they figured out that it actually was valuable. Is there any data projects you think were interesting? The idea of what the data using and abusing of
3: the data really. Yeah, there's. I mean, of course, this is a big conversation among yes. artists, and it has been for a while. Um, one of the projects is in our gallery show is called Lungs by a duo called the from the UK called Yoha, mm-hmm. made up of Graham Harwood and Matsuko Yokokoji, and that project is using a database from the 1930s that was actually collected um, around the workers at a munitions factory in Karlsruhe, Germany, um, by the sort of Nazi officials that mm-hmm. ran that factory. Like
2: data. The Nazis in,
3: like data. Yeah, and it was developed. I guess the database was developed using the punch card machines that IBM was supplying That's to right. the Nazi government at that point in time. So, I, in the project they show in the gallery, they use this database and they kind of give um, a breathing sound to each entry in the database, which represents an enslaved worker. So, as a way of kind of rehumanizing the people that were um, suffering under this regime mm-hmm. um, through the data set that was created to oppress them. It's the idea of a, a kind of software memorial to mm-hmm. them using sound. And I was interested in this project as a way of thinking about the whole concept of like the database as being something that kind of controls us, but looking further back into its history mm-hmm. um, and, um, and you know, in a way of like,
2: giving it meaning, giving it meaning is, and giving
3: it yeah. um Emotional depth.
2: Absolutely, because each piece of data is a person in some way or some piece of a person. We're here with Michael Connor. He's the artistic director of Rhizome. We're going to take a quick break again now, and we'll be back talking about where art on the Internet is going and a little bit about stuff that already gets created every day and if that's art or not when we get back. They have a new show at the New Museum in New York City. It's called The Art Happens Here, and it's about net art.
0: The most valuable business. Making your money
1: work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV. The Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit Kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and/or driving conditions. Always drive safely. We're here with Michael Connor,
2: the artistic director of Rhizome. They have a show in New York City at the new museum called The Art Happens Here. It's about net art. And we're talking about a lot. You were talking about a lot of different things that people use and the tools they use, whether it be email or browsers or flash or various things to create art. Where is it going? Where is art going? You're preserving the ones that created, but even as you speak, so much more is being created, right? It's like a constant, and and all, some of the stuff is 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 like I just went to see like about a couple of months ago, Carne In Arena, which was a VR artwork around immigration, where you put on the VR, you experienced being in the desert with immigrants. It was beautiful. There was all this beautiful um, VR art around it, and and you were physically in a space that you felt cold you walked around without your shoes. It was cool. It was really interesting way to get through the the messaging around, um, the message that the artist wanted to talk about immigration. I thought that was a really wonderful way to depict that from an artistic point of view. Um, How do you, and and that was also funded by Lorraine Jobs, who was doing a lot of photography art around immigration and things like that. Um, Where are things going? What do you think the new technologies, what are you seeing?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's also a difficult question. I'm, mm-hmm. I've am i been in doing this internet art business for a good while. I have mm-hmm. luckily a co-curator who's more in touch with, like the newer scenes, Aria Dean. Uh, she couldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that we kind of noticed in doing this project was that there are sort of distinct shifts that happen on the internet. And mm-hmm. one of the recent ones that kind of relates to what you're talking about is, um, you know, the way that artists have retaken a position within gaming. And I think, you know, um, oh, has, gaming is beautiful. Yeah, and I think that it's it's there's been a proliferation of tools that allow for um, games to be made more easily mm-hmm. over the past five years, let's say. Yeah, or maybe eight at the most. And that's really important because, um, you know, I don't know if there's like a famous quote where Francis Ford Coppola is talking about how filmmaking will only be an art form when like the when like the 13 year old girl can make a movie with her camera. Mm-hmm. And something similar applies in the in the digital realm where. You know, when gaming feels too complicated and accessible, people can't express themselves through mm-hmm. that platform as easily. Right. So, you know, we've had things like um, uh, really interesting work um, on the, the gaming front. Uh, one of the works from NetArt Anthology is by an artist that we love from the Bay Area named Porpentine. This is her. Um, uh, this is her project, um, Psycho Nymph Exile, which is actually. Um, a hypertext kind of narrative that um, brings people through this computer-generated landscape and tells this fragmented story.
2: And you click on the different...
3: You click on the on the text to move through it. So mm-hmm. it's actually kind of like a throwback in a way to like mm-hmm. earlier forms of net art, but it's bringing it into a Unity 3D environment.
2: Right, right. Um, and yes, using Unity, it, I can see that, yeah. Using yeah. it as a way to... Unity as like, a gaming uh, soft, way to design and develop games, but go ahead.
3: Yeah, and so she, she's um, creating this kind of game-like environment, which is very beautiful, the whole story is about um, working through trauma, and mm-hmm. the fragmented nature of the game um, relates to the way that people experience um, reality in a fragmented way after a trauma.
2: And sh- and she's using the gaming platform essentially yes. to do that because.
3: Well, I think because gaming allows for the creation of a kind of speculative reality. I think that she's interested in um, in the world building um, aspect of games. That through games you can create a world mm-hmm. and. In through her, games, you do
2: create a world. Yes.
3: <laughs> and uh, so the, for her, the work is really creating a world where people can experience this particular imaginary, speculative way of working through trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the world building itself is the kind of artistic project. Right. Um, it, would
2: it, w- and any other sort of technology you see promising around it? VR is obviously one. Yeah.
3: Work. Well, VR is quite promising. But I, I was going to mention VR. that one of the things that I think artists on the internet are really quite focused on now is um, there's almost like a blurring line between art and non-art that I see happening. Mm-hmm. So in Net Art Anthology in the last few years, there are projects like Artists Who Are Making a Stock Photo Agency as an Artwork mm-hmm. um, and one of my favorites is an artist, Raffia Santana who's using um, the internet to kind of create a contemporary reparation scheme called Pay Black Times She started this after the oh, election wow. in 2016 and it was basically like um,
2: Playback time,
3: <laughs> yeah, pay, pay black time. black yeah. time. Okay. Play. Yeah, and it's it was you know she was like things. thinking about the election and mm-hmm. how um, she was seeing like a lot of white guilt being circulated online mm-hmm. and she was like let's turn this into a resource so her project is that white internet users can buy meals for black um, artists and internet users mm-hmm. and she facilitates that and oh, has wow. done so successfully for um, f- you know for a couple of years so there's you know gestures like that which are like really material and they're you know they're quite economically oriented in a way and they're a little bit like it can be diffi- difficult to differentiate in a sense between mm-hmm. like what's art and what's just a thing in the world.
2: So let's just talk about what's just a thing because there's a lot of things that are published on the internet that are quite creative. You know what I mean? For all the direct that's out there and, and there's plenty, you can do lots of art about the direct that's on the internet. The reactive and quickness of it, some of it is just Twitter can be very Beautiful in a weird way. It can be funny. It can be moving. Um, Lots of things you see on the net can be like, even Tinder has a poignancy to it, right? (laughs) Doesn't it? It kind of does. When how people pick pictures, you could see artists taking advantage of of all these things. Facebook, probably. There's probably like a wonderful thing to be done artistically about Facebook.
3: Yeah. Um, And I'm not here to like be a you know, to litigate like what's right. art and what's not, especially right. because I agree with you that you know what internet users do is already beautiful. Yeah, some you know, of despite it. the best a- efforts of at Jack or whoever else. Yeah, um, and I think that those things should be sort of understood as artwork, and the the kinds of work that I try and champion and that we work often with at Resum, it's not like an artist that steps back and like paints a picture of what's mm-hmm. already happening like positioning the artist outside of it as the observer that sure. has a privileged position. But artists that are like in that mix themselves mm-hmm. and that the work functions in that um, in that kind of culture um, and then in that digital culture, that it's kind of deeply engaged with it, that it's of digital culture and not right. something distinct.
2: And what about commenting on digital culture, like the screen time and addiction and things like that? Because one of the things is you're consuming this over screens. And of course, there's all the countries around what screens do to our society. And art is always talked about how things, whether it's cars or television or something, affects us. There's been lots of art on those issues. Is that something you think will be part of it? Or, or what these, they're using mediums that could be damaging to the society at large and things like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of, like, screen time is a complicated one. You know, I was re- recently reading a statistic that 80% of white users um, say that social media is a distraction from the important things, and then 80% of black users think that social media is a way that important issues... Reach audiences that wouldn't otherwise be heard, yep. and the symmetry of that statistic, like, is mm-hmm. alarming. I think mm-hmm. that we should be careful about thinking that social media is bad because we're experiencing negative news on it or right or contact. Trauma. We already knew, like, yeah. It, yeah. So, yeah. that's I a mean, really good. But all of these things surface it. in artist's work, you know, and like we every year we run a microgrant scheme in the summer, so people can apply with like their random idea mm-hmm. for a small grant um, from Rhizome. and I think through that we really surface like what people are interested in making work in response to now. And certainly, like, one of the things that I think has been emerging is just, you know, imagining we're at this point where the Internet does show signs of kind of fracturing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're starting to see things like Russia doing an experiment where they're trying to disconnect from the Internet for a day. And so, you know, the DNS system and, like, the international consensus that's required to keep that going, um, we're seeing things like experiments with... um, Mesh networking or USB sticks and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. What do you do
2: with a USB stick?
3: Well, in uh, in, oh, in Cuba they run a kind of a massive media sharing mm-hmm, um, network through right. USB called mm-hmm. El Paquete Semanal, and um, and I think those are the kinds of things that people are thinking about now because the idea of like an always on trade. Them. they
2: trade the USB sticks. Right? And
3: well, there's also a kind of commercial um, venture yes. around it too. So yeah. it's, it's my a son's trading were just there. They were telling me about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I think that people look to those examples and think like. You know, we shouldn't make the assumption that we will always have this kind of freely accessible gl- global cloud infrastructure that we can tap into at any moment. It's mm-hmm. almost like we're coming to like the end of the moment where we had that um, like cloud infrastructure golden age. And it always had edges too. Mm-hmm. One of the works in the show is called NetArt Latino Database. And we worked with the um, artists that created this back in the early 2000s. And when we were presenting, uh, one of the works that he chose as part of NetArt Anthology with us he didn't like the idea of presenting it only in emulation because there's no cloud server located in Latin America that right. can run the kind of emulation that I showed you at the start of the show. Mm-hmm. So he made this like beautiful walkthrough video of the work that you can like watch on a much slower connection sure. and have a kind of good experience right. of it. Right. And so that kind of thinking like that, um, uh, you know, it's kind of always existed, um, and I think it's maybe coming into view now in a new way as these kinds of resource pressures. Sure, absolutely. Uh,
2: Whether we're going to be able to access it, that is true. You could do it in a different, you can present it in a different way because a lot of these, they must be dying like other people to use all the latest tools, like, right, to pick things and things like that. There's always going to be art created in analog, but how do you look at the, finish up talking about the the, the difference between analog art and digital art? How do you look at that? Is that a shift? Is that a break? Or or you could, or not, or, or not at all. Because a lot of analog art is now all over the internet. Like, I was thinking of this Ivanka thing that's going on and, uh, you know, with her vacuuming stuff. And it's every, like, they're using the internet to push out lots of art. And lots of stuff is being preserved online. Everything from the Dead Sea Scrolls to, you know, there's all kinds of things. That's not art, but it's being Preservation is happening on the internet in ways that we couldn't have imagined. Is there a break between the two of them, or do you see where do you see that going?
3: I mean, I see both continuity and change. Mm-hmm. And certainly in this project, um you know, thinking about how networks um, have always been a part of art making has tried to inform we tried to ha- have that inform our thinking. But um, the computer is really a transformative tool. Mm-hmm. and I think it's you know it's like that thing um, there is a famous kind of nRA quote, you know. That people uh, guns don't kill people people kill mm-hmm. people but of course the reality people with guns is kill as, people, but go ahead with that? <laughs> people with guns killed. exactly well people plus gun is different than just people yeah, right. and right. artist plus computer is different than mm-hmm. just artists and I think that um you know understanding that there is a kind of material difference that happens when um when work is made in this way and circulated in this way is important to thinking about how how to sustain that work over mm-hmm. time and preserve it
2: and do you think artists are relying more on these digital tools even art even? Well, everybody in some way is using these digital tools. Has it changed the way we think of creation of art?
3: Absolutely. The idea that you can make work on canvas for an online audience is such an interesting one. And artists have thought through that carefully. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the works in Net Art Anthology by Artie Verkant is called Image Objects. It's a series of works that there are two-dimensional pieces that look like sculptures when they're photographed and circulated online. So they're meant to look different for a web visitor and a gallery visitor. Mm-hmm. And this was already a way of thinking about, like, how do I use the gallery space as, like, a networked environment um, presenting work for people all over the world to look at? I would argue that the Ivanka Trump performance of someone vacuuming is a performance that's staged for the Internet Absolutely, also. And 100%. It, and that results in a different kind of work being the
2: Commentary, everything is yeah. part yeah. of it. The commentary, the re- outrage over it, the delight over it, it's really—it's an interesting—
3: so ultimately, it's all net art now.
2: <laughs> it's all net out now. All right, I want to end on that. Wait, do you imagine a day when there's just not, everything will be in this sort of holographic, you know, you could see, you could see where it could go. It could bring more art to people because they get to see more, or it could create this sort of strange, like, do you, what happens to galleries going forward, the physical galleries?
3: Well, you know, galleries have surprisingly withstood a lot of shocks already mm-hmm. as technology has changed. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, at the moment, the um, there's still something different that you get from standing in a space with people and moving your body around that you mm-hmm. are not getting other places. I imagine that in the future, the real question will be not that those places won't continue to exist or won't continue to be important, but it sort of becomes a question of access. Like, is it easier in the future to visit spaces virtually, or does the Apparatus needed to visit them virtually become hard to get. You mm-hmm. know, I really think that um, it won't be. You don't think so? No. There you go. Remember,
2: well, I remember suitcase telephones. Now everybody has one.
3: Well, I think that like the question of like what is consciousness or something, mm-hmm. which is something that some of the artists in ornithology Art think through, is going to you know is going to mean that we have um, work that can address us in you know very different ways than what mm-hmm. we've seen so far. Yeah. Those kinds of like refiguring consciousness through technology, new new ways of like accessing the brain directly outside of the sensorium, those things will like allow yeah. for different artistic experiences. Absolutely.
2: And we haven't even gotten it a haptic touch.
3: Oh, yeah. It's going <laughs> to be wild. That'll it will go, be wild. Yeah, it
2: will be wild. Going <laughs> anyway, Michael, this is riveting, and I'd love to talk more about it. I'm going to come visit the show. I urge you all to go look at it online. It's at the New Museum. If you're in New York City, the art happens here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Michael, where can people find you and this show online?
3: They can find the online show at anthology.rhizome.org. Mm-hmm. They can email me at michael.connor at right. And they should buy the book. Okay, and, and, and
2: you were you are displaying some of this on Instagram. You're using all the social media yeah, tools.
3: Yeah, when we present new works on Net Art Anthology, which continues through May, they can see those on um, our Instagram account which is rhizome.org, all spelled out, or twitter.com slash rhizome. And also
2: apply for grants if they have artistic Yeah,
3: this summer we'll have the micro-grant call coming up, so sign up to our mailing list to hear about that.
2: Great. Thank you so much. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.